Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to episode 17 of the weekly UK true crime podcast. I'm Adam. We're a day late today. I'm really sorry, but my laptop gave up the ghost. So here we are. And today this is a really special episode because the content of the episode was written by a good friend of the show, Paul, who will be better known to you as the true crime enthusiast. Please follow him on Twitter at TC underscore enthusiast or follow his excellent blog at truecrimeenthusiast.wordpress.com. There are some fantastic lesser-known UK cases to read about there. And his writing style is fantastic. It's really well written and it's a fascinating blog. Please head that way. His full contact details can be found on the show notes for today's episode. If you would like to become involved in the podcast or publish some content for the written blog at uktruecrime.com, please let me know. I should add finally that, as always, the poor attempts at humour can't be blamed on Paul. Unfortunately, they're all mine. If you live in the UK, it's likely you've watched a BBC programme, Crime Watch. Hey, I bet you can probably even hum the theme tune. One of the most successful TV programmes to have ever been broadcast on UK TV is Crime Watch UK. It's a live show that started in June 1984 as a monthly broadcast. It's still running to this day, albeit sporadically now, and the presenters all stand up rather than sit down as they did in the old days. Why is that? Any ideas? It has had numerous presenters over its 33-year history, with the most famous and best-known combination being Nick Ross and Sue Cooke, who hosted it from inception for over 10 years. Upon Sue Cooke's departure, it was hosted by TV presenter Jill Dando until she was tragically murdered on the doorstep of her London home in April 1999. There are still those who believe that her unsolved death was due to presenting the show. For all its changing presenters, the format of Crime Watch hasn't really changed throughout its inception. It shows televised reconstructions of crimes UK-wide that police are struggling to solve and invites viewers to call in with any information they may have concerning the crime. The programme also shows CCTV footage of people wanted in connection with crimes and at one time used to feature an antiques expert who would look at property that had been stolen, trying to reunite it with its previous owners. Now, I, I never liked that part of the show. It reminded me too much of Sunday nights before school the next day, watching Antiques Roadshow and Songs of Praise. That They're Sunday nights I'd rather forget about. For the majority of each crime, there are also investigating officers in the studio and also at the incident room locally. Some of the police in the studio have now had media training and they come across really quite well. Unlike the old days, when the communication was, well, it was a little bit variable to say the least. The aim of the programme is not for people to offer their own wild theories as armchair detectives, hey, this isn't Twitter, but to call in if they can genuinely provide information on the crimes featured. Perhaps somebody watching, you might just see something familiar to them, a face, a vehicle you know, or a sequence of events featured on a reconstruction. 
tell me, have, have you ever phoned Crime Watch with somebody or something you've recognised? If so, please do let me know. I'd, I'd love to hear your story. In its long run, Crime Watch UK has been responsible for the successful detection of hundreds of crimes, and it is direct information received as a result of calls to Crime Watch that has led to the successful detection and prosecution of some of the most serious cases in UK history. For example, the 1993 murder of Liverpool toddler James Bolger, the so-called M25 rapist Antonio Emilia, Michael Sams for the 1992 murder of Judy Dart and also the kidnap of estate agent Stephanie Slater, and also Kenneth Noy, do you remember that 1996, that horrendous M25 road rage murder of poor Stephen Cameron? With such a successful track record, nowadays the programme can pick and choose the cases it appeals, as all police forces across the UK willingly want to have their cases broadcast to a nationwide audience. But it wasn't always like that. Back in the early years, people didn't really know if it was going to be successful and how it would work. So often they had to make their own appeals and sell itself, offering its help to detectives investigating crimes. One of its very early success stories was such a case, and one that highlighted just how fruitful a nationwide appeal could be, from any part of the country, perhaps hundreds of miles away. This was the case on the 29th of July 1985, when the show was aired at 9.25pm, featuring the bogus gas man of Bristol. Let's take you back to July 1985. Back to the Future had been released earlier this month, the first of the massively successful series of programmes. It was also the month and year that Live Aid, the pop concerts in London and Philadelphia, raised more than £50 million for famine relief in Ethiopia. Did you watch it? I remember it pretty well. For me and many others in the UK, it was Freddie Mercury and Queen who stole the show. What did you think? Also in July that year, Commodore released the Amiga personal computer, at the Lincoln Centre in New York. So there were plenty of memorable events there, but for many of the residents of the Bristol suburb of Bedminster, they remember July 1985 for very different reasons. The loss of one of their own, shopkeeper Roy Page. Roy Page was 61 years old in 1985 and had run a corner tobacconist and sweet shop in Bedminster since 1975. Frankly, the shop had seen better days, with chipped and peeling paint, swing doors cutting an angle across the corner, and the name Page setting peeling lettering across the shop window. These types of shops were once common in the UK, but the majority of which are now closed because they struggle to compete with larger businesses. Roy had been a widower for three years since his wife Joan had died, and he lived alone at the back of the shop. It's fair to say that Roy's life had centred upon the shop, which he opened at 7.30 each morning, and more often than not, he was still there till at least 8.30 every evening. He was the sort of guy where, if you were five minutes early or late, he would open the shop or keep it open for you. Because running a local shop tends to make you well-known in the area, and Roy was certainly no exception. He was popular and well-liked in Bedminster, and was known as a friendly and devoted family man, who always had time for a chat with friends and neighbours who dropped him for cigarettes or groceries. Ever since Joan had died, Roy's family had worried about him and they rallied round to care for him. His 86-year-old mum cooked him lunch every day and his sister Shirley did the clearing up for him and carried out a variety of his other chores. 
On the face of it, Thursday, July the 18th, 1985 was no different to any other day. Shirley had been around to clean up for Roy and she'd noticed he'd left the safe door open and that money had been left lying around. This had been something she'd scolded him for many times before, as Roy was known to be quite careless with money. He often left the till drawer open, and he had a tendency to put small amounts of cash in ice cream tubs, which he would then leave lying around his house. Shirley closed the safe and reminded him to be more careful, then left at about 4.15 that afternoon. About an hour and a half later, a friend and neighbour of Roy's, Tom Colts, called round to the shop to buy cigarettes and to have a chat, but he found the door to the shop was locked. Thinking Roy had just popped away to use the toilet or something, Tom waited for him to return. But when ten minutes had passed and there was still no sign of Roy, Tom began to feel uncomfortable. Looking through the window, he could see that the light was on at the back of the shop. He knew that Roy was a diabetic and he worried that perhaps he might have been in a diabetic coma and taken ill. With his levels of anxiety steadily increasing, Tom returned home and tried to phone Roy, but there was no answer. By now he was thoroughly alarmed and returned to Roy's shop with another neighbour. At this stage there were several children and quite a crowd of worried people outside the shop, and several people hammered on the door and shouted through the letterbox for Roy, but there was no response. A few minutes later, Roy's son Brian and his friend Stephen had arrived, and Stephen climbed over the rear wall to see if he could get in through the back door. He was back a couple of minutes later to report that the back door was also locked, all of the windows were closed, and most importantly the curtains were drawn. Knowing that his father never drew the curtains, Brian now knew that something was seriously wrong. Seeing a patrol car passing, Brian flagged it down and reported his concerns to the officer. Along with the police officer who had stopped, Brian and Stephen forced open the doors to the shop and they were immediately met with the overpowering smell of gas. Making their way into the house, they found Roy's body lying slumped half in and half out of the hall cupboard under the stairs. He was clearly dead, having been beaten severely around the head and having had a gag forced brutally down his throat. After making Brian and Stephen leave the house, both for their safety and to preserve the scene, the police officer went to turn off the gas. He found that every gas appliance in the house had been turned on and so he immediately turned them off. By some miracle, the pilot light on the gas cooker had gone out. If it hadn't, this gas would have caused a tremendous explosion. Making his way out of the shop and the house, the police officer requested assistance to the scene. An ambulance quickly arrived, followed by detectives, scene of crime officers, forensic experts and squads of police officers who began to undertake the house-to-house inquiries. An incident room run from Broadbury Road Police Station was opened and command of the investigation was given to Detective Superintendent Lou Clark and his deputy, Detective Inspector Brian Saunders of Avon and Somerset Police. Examination of the crime scene soon led them to suspect that robbery had been the motive for Roy's murder, as some £2,000 had been taken, which was quite a lot of money back then. But Roy's killer had been careless, and when forensic experts had finished at the scene, it was found that he left behind two vital clues. The first was a grey spongy piece from a set of earphones. These were used in 1985 to listen to a Walkman or a transistor radio, but the second clue was more damning. 
There were some unidentified fingerprints found on an empty chemist bag in the kitchen that had contained a prescription for Roy. And it was possible that the killer had touched the bag when he picked up the cloth that had been forced down Roy's throat. Further evidence came to light as the investigation progressed and as the house-to-house inquiries expanded to other areas of the city. Several witnesses gave accounts of seeing a man who police soon became convinced was Roy's killer. He'd been far from inconspicuous on the day of the murder and he'd been seen and spoken to several people throughout that day. He was described as being tall, dark-haired and heavily built, wearing headphones and carrying a Walkman or possibly a calculator. Some witnesses simply described what he was carrying as being a black box. He was dressed in dark blue overalls, and some witnesses described him as wearing glasses attached to his head with elastic bands, while others mentioned him wearing a brown woolen hat. But what was unanimous amongst all who had spoken to the man was that he claimed to be a gas official looking for gas leaks in the area, and he had a very rich, very strong Welsh accent. This man had seemed to focus his attention upon tobacconists and sweet shops throughout the city. He'd been noticed in at least three on the morning of the murder in the northern Hawfield area. He seemed to focus his attentions further south by the afternoon and had moved down to the Bedminster area of the city. He was seen loitering in at least one sweet shop there that afternoon, where he eventually left after buying a cold drink. In the next two hours, the man was seen and spoken to by many people, where he repeated his story of being a gas board official out looking for gas leaks. Crucially, several of the people who saw the bogus gas man saw him outside or very close to Roy Page's shop. Maureen and Elizabeth Gerrish were two elderly sisters who lived in Bedminster, and at about 4pm that afternoon their doorbell rang. Upon answering the door, they were confronted by the bogus gas man, who asked them if they'd noticed any gas leaks. As they talked on the phone, Elizabeth noticed that the man's overalls had come undone, and that he was wearing white underpants with thin blue piping along the waistband. Nice. They'd no problems with their gas supply, but a friend of theirs had, and so they directed the man to a Mrs Perkins a few doors away. Mrs Perkins had indeed been concerned about a possible gas leak in her kitchen, and when the man arrived at her house, she immediately invited him in to investigate. He did find a leak, but strangely this seemed to cause him problems because he had no repair equipment with him. Suddenly, and this was to become crucial later on in the investigation, the man began to sweat profusely and gasp for breath. He leaned on the kitchen sink as though he was going to pass out and needed to support himself and asked for a glass of water. A concerned Mrs Perkins tried to persuade him to stay for tea, but the man made excuses, gulped his water and left in a hurry. Roy Page's shop was on the corner of this road so the bogus gas man must have gone straight there. He was seen sometime between 4.30pm and 5 o'clock p.m. by two paper boys who were convinced that he was arguing with Roy outside the building. Shortly after 5, a woman walking opposite the shop saw the man follow Roy inside. And at 6.15pm, a man walking home from work saw someone coming out of the side door to the shop. The description matched all of the others. Heavily built, dark hair, wearing glasses, but this time he was without his overalls and was carrying a jacket in his hand. It was about this point in the investigation that Crime Watch UK stepped in. A researcher for the show had seen an appeal about Roy's murder mentioned in a local newspaper 
and a film director for the programme contacted the murder incident room, offering the help of the programme. Police, whose appeal was going nowhere, jumped at the chance for televised reconstruction. So a few days later, after permission had been gained from Roy's family, filming began of a full-scale televised reconstruction. Some of the witnesses in the case opted to play themselves in the reconstruction, including Roy's sister Shirley, his neighbour Tom Coles, the Gerrish sisters and of course Mrs Perkins. An actor was found through a trawl of casting agency books who bore a strong resemblance to the bogus gas man and as an added bonus the actor could portray a splendid Welsh accent. Another actor was found to take the part of Roy Page and the known events of the day that Roy was murdered were reconstructed. Just six weeks after Roy's murder some 12 million people the length and breadth of the UK watched the reconstruction and heard Detective Lou Clark appeal for information. But Clark was ultimately left feeling disappointed. By the end of the evening, long after the phone lines to the studio had been closed down, there had been surprisingly few calls to the studio and only one of these had any real significant information. The caller was a woman who lived in Bedminster area who had been on holiday at the time of the case had been publicised but she called to say that at about 5.15 on the day of the murder, she'd gone to Roy's shop to buy sweets for her daughter. She found the shop closed, and peering through the glass doors of the shop, she suddenly saw a man appear near the counter, whose description matched that of the bogus gas man. The man had placed his hands against his cheek and mouthed the words, He's asleep. The woman then left. Although this was important fresh evidence, because the woman had seen the killer at the scene of the crime, it brought the police no nearer to catching him. Interesting, isn't it, back then, that this lady was away on holiday and so she missed the publicity around the case. It's not like nowadays where we can just log into almost any site and find out all the information about what's been happening. It looked to Clark as though Crime Watch UK was going to be a big white elephant and he was faced with the only line of inquiry left to him, a painstaking search of fingerprints that may have taken months. As you'll know, back in 1985, computer databases were in their infancy and many such records were kept on an index card system. But a week after the Crime Watch programme had aired, there was suddenly a new turn of events. The bogus gas man took a day trip down to the south coast of England, to Portsmouth, on Friday, September the 6th. He seemed to have been unaware that millions of people had seen him portrayed in a TV reconstruction just one week before, because he began to behave in much the same strange way as he had in Bedminster. He was dressed the same as when he killed Roy, and he repeated the pattern of visiting small shops in the Fratton district of the city. Here he disturbed one woman serving in a local spa supermarket to such an extent that she became very wary. He wandered around the shop in Chichester Road for a while, eventually buying a frozen steak meal, but instead of leaving, he lingered by the door, acting very strangely, although he did eventually leave when some other customers came into the shop. Then just half an hour later, the bogus gas man was seen at the bottom end of another road, loitering outside a small newsagent's. The witness who had seen him, Stephen Harfield, had been driving past and stopped the car to watch the man's behaviour in the car wing mirror. The man was acting very oddly outside the shop, Although he was debating whether or not to go in, Stephen had seen the Crime Watch reconstruction from Bristol and after watching the suspicious behaviour for a few minutes, he decided to call police from a nearby public telephone box. 
Again, 1985, public phone boxes. What a difference. Stephen was the first of six people to ring police and report the bogus gas man acting suspiciously in Portsmouth that day. He was then seen about 45 minutes later strolling into a park by somebody else who had seen the crime watch reconstruction. Colin Weaver had been looking after his nieces on the night the programme had been aired and the children had been playing with the TV remote, changing the channels whilst it had been on the screen. Although he had seen very little of the reconstruction, something had triggered Colin's memory and following his instincts, he stopped his car and followed the man into the park. Trailing him from a safe distance, Colin watched as the bogus gas man wandered over to a mound at the side of a children's playground. He sat back and lay back to bask in the sun of that warm late September day. It looked like the man was going to stay there for a while, so Colin hurried to the nearest phone box and called the police. Police Constable Peter Green had already responded that afternoon to several calls, but every time he responded, the man had gone. PC Green had not seen the Crime Watch broadcast, so he wasn't sure entirely what he was looking for, but he was determined that the suspect would not get away this time after an afternoon of fruitless searching, and he rushed to the park with added impetus. When he arrived, the man was still there, reclining on the grass verge with his shoes beside him like he didn't have a care in the world. He didn't seem at all phased when he was approached by the policeman. When questioned about his identity and his business, the man identified himself as Clive Richards and then added that he was a professor. Firstly, he said he was from London and then almost in the very next breath, he told the policeman he was from Reading. He claimed that he was a professor of nontology and totology and he was employed by the Department of Environment carrying out a top-secret study about conservation. He claimed that he'd been in London conducting surveys regarding the homeless and he'd headed down to Portsmouth that day to continue his study. The reason he was dressed as he was was to enable him to blend in amongst that community. The man's story, given in a somewhat rambling and confusing manner, it didn't sit right with the police officer. And coupled with the fact that this man strongly matched the description that PC Green had to go on of the bogus gas man, even down to the strong Welsh accent, he asked the man to accompany him to the police station to answer further questions. Richards was more than happy to do so, with his only concern being that he was back in time to catch his train later that evening. He was assured that he would be delivered to the platform personally, and the two men set off for Kingston Crescent Police Station in Portsmouth. Upon arrival at the police station, PC Green decided to search the professor's bag, and he removed several items that raised his suspicions further. In this bag, Richard had several bottles of fizzy drink, a pair of rubber gloves, a Walkman and a pair of white underpants with blue piping around the waistband. There was also, more worryingly, a heavy iron bar and a sheath knife. Richards was totally unconcerned when asked why he was carrying such weapons. He said that these were for his own protection while he was carrying out his surveys. Referring to a telex circulated by Crime Watch UK after the reconstruction that had a full description of the bogus gas man, PC Green was by this time convinced that he had the murderer sitting in front of him. He rang the Bristol incident room to inform them. The murder investigating team in Bristol were euphoric and they told PC Green to keep the man there at all costs and detectives immediately were going to head down to Portsmouth. 
The deputy senior investigating officer, Detective Inspector Brian Saunders, made a three-hour drive from Bristol to Portsmouth. All the while he was thinking, this is just too good to be true. This man exactly matches the description we already have from witnesses. Upon his arrival, he was struck at first by the array of items removed from the bag that Richard had been carrying, especially the underpants that matched those given by the Gerrish sisters. When Brian Saunders went into the interview room, he was instantly struck by just how accurate a match physically Richard's was to the description given by witnesses, even down to his strong Welsh accent. But for Brian Saunders, the moment he became convinced he had his man was when he told him who he was and that he was arresting him on suspicion of the murder of Roy Page. Richard immediately began to sweat profusely and asked for water, which was exactly as Mrs Perkins had described the bogus gas man as doing back in Bristol. Richards kept gulping for a bottle of water all the way back to Bristol, denying that he'd killed Roy Page and maintaining that he hadn't even been in Bristol on the day he'd been murdered. The following morning, after Richards had spent the night in a cell, his fingerprints were taken. They were found to match perfectly the fingerprints that had been taken from the chemist's bag found in Roy Page's shop. Richards was also placed on identity parades at separate police stations, where 8 out of 10 witnesses who had seen the bogus gas man immediately picked him out as the man they had seen. As he was taken back to Broadway Road Police Station, Detective Inspector Saunders deliberately drove past Roy Page's shop just to see how Richards would react. When asked if he'd ever been there, Richards replied that he hadn't. Upon his return to Broadbury Road, Richards was charged with the murder of Roy Page and remanded in custody, awaiting trial. Whilst Richards was on remand, Avon and Somerset detectives worked through the evidence they'd obtained and they came to know a vast amount about his life. He seemed to be an extraordinary man, one who had lived in a world that was pretty much largely make-believe. Indeed, it was difficult to work out to what extent Richards himself believed in the fabricated stories that he came out with. He'd been born in Port Talbot in South Wales in 1950, and although he'd had an extremely high IQ, he'd left school without any qualifications. Remaining at home with his family, his parents, his brother and sister, he had driven the mobile shop that was a major part of his family's ice cream and confectionery business. Encouraged by his parents to expand the business, he branched out the range of stock in the shop and bought a fleet of six more vehicles. But in doing so, the business was left badly in debt, eventually owing more than £10,000. Richards was now in desperate need of capital. It was at this time that his charade appeared to kick in, and he invented a whole host of acquaintances, colleagues, business contacts, friends and job offers in an effort to convince his father that he was successful enough and to be able to repay the money he had lost. How common is this we hear in cases, true crime cases, trying to convince somebody's father or mother or other members of their family that they are a success? In reality, he was seeking deeper and deeper into debt and he was hiding from bailiffs and repossession companies so the option he chose was to retreat into the safety of his fantasy world. Richards even told his family that he was a professor working for a secret society in the field of genetics. And it may even be the case that Richard himself truly believed that he was a professor studying nonatology and totology. But of course, as you'd have guessed by now, there were no such subjects. 
Indeed, they were just a complete figment of Richard's imagination. Clive Richards entered a plea of not guilty when he came to trial for the murder of Roy Page in April 1986. He listened attentively to the numerous witnesses that were called throughout the eight-day trial. The various witnesses who had seen him in Bristol that day and subsequently ID'd Richards from identity parades were called and they gave evidence for the prosecution about what they had seen. The investigating officers gave evidence as to the circumstances of his arrest and the evidence placing him at the scene of the crime was outlined. Throughout the trial he was scribbling furiously in a notebook he had by his side and sometimes he would look up and shake his head in denial or disbelief while the witnesses were giving evidence. A psychiatrist from Broadmoor Secure Hospital gave evidence that Richards' fantasies for working in the field of nonetics were the result of a mental illness. Dr Harvey Gordon had examined Richards during his time on remand awaiting trial and he said of him, On balance, I think he is suffering from severe mental illness, normally known as chronic schizophrenia. But Richards did not plead insanity, and nor was the plea entered on his behalf. But evidence of his flair for a fantasy life came when he took to the stand to conduct his own defence. For over five hours whilst in the witness box, Richards spoke very articulately, and he claimed he was not guilty throughout. But each time he was presented with evidence that contradicted his claim, he launched into stories that were, that were fantastic and complex and bizarre, but they came incredulous to believe and almost impossible to follow at times. At points throughout the proceedings, it sometimes became difficult to envisage that the man in the dock was anything more than a fantasist. Surely he wasn't capable of being a brutal killer. But ultimately the jury saw through the fantasy. And on the 7th of May 1986, the judge unanimously found Clive Richards guilty of the murder of Roy Page. The presiding judge... Mr Justice Rose, passed a sentence of life imprisonment and pronounced this considered view of Richard's crime. You are a clever, arrogant and dangerous man. Had it not been for the observation and prompt action of a number of inhabitants of Portsmouth, I fear you would have committed other very grave offences which you'd already planned. Lou Clark, the officer who led the hunt for Roy's killer, was in agreement with the judge. After sentencing... Clark said, I quite agree with the judge's remarks there. Think of the way he was armed when he was arrested. He had a heavy iron bar and a sheath knife in his bag. Why did he have that? I haven't any doubt myself that he was out to commit robbery at least that day. And if opposed, he would have used as much violence as necessary to achieve his ends. That's my opinion and that will always be my opinion. It's really hard to understand why Clive Richards went to Bristol that day in July 1985 and why he targeted Roy Page's shop. Why did he make himself so visible to a number of witnesses? Why as a physically strong man of 35 years of age did he feel the need to use such violence against an elderly man such as Roy Page? The answers to these questions and many others remain a mystery known only to Richards himself. He's never admitted the murder instead constantly denying his guilt, despite the overwhelming evidence. Perhaps it's because admitting and accepting his guilt does not fit in too well with the fantasy world that he likes to live in. Would Richards have committed a similar crime in Portsmouth that day? It seems very likely that he would have done so if it hadn't been for the actions of some sharp-eyed viewers that had tuned into a fledgling television programme. 
It was a major success for Crime Watch UK and one that helped cement its future as not only a staple of British television, but as a proven useful tool for detectives looking for breaks in difficult investigations. Long may it continue. I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the weekly UK True Crime podcast. My big thanks again to Paul, the true crime enthusiast, for researching and bringing to our attention such a little known and such an interesting case. Please follow him on Twitter at TC underscore enthusiast or follow his blog at truecrimeenthusiast.wordpress.com. That's it from me, so I look forward to speaking with you next week. Bye for now. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.